everyone, we're coming to you from Down Under for this week's episode. Earlier this year, I caught up with Van Lee. She's the co-founder and chief strategy and innovation officer of Zinja, an Australian banking startup that's known as a neobank. A neobank simply means a completely digital bank, no brick and mortar or no tellers, and everything's focused solely on the customer's digital experience. Van's got a great perspective on leadership and what it's been like trying to disrupt one of the world's oldest, most regulated industries. And she's got an amazing personal story as well. I really enjoyed this conversation with her in City, and I hope you do also. And hey, thanks so much for all the feedback that you've given me. I really appreciate it. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Keep the feedback coming. Thanks, and I'll see you next week. You're listening to A Call to Lead, a different kind of leadership podcast. Brought to you by SAP, the world's largest provider of enterprise application software. SAP engineers solutions to help companies become best-run businesses by transforming industries, growing economies, lifting up societies, and sustaining our environment. Because it's the best-run businesses that make the world run better. And now, your host, Jennifer Morgan. Van, it's so great to be with you here in beautiful Sydney, um, we just had a great opportunity to spend time with a small audience of a few thousand people. Just a small audience. <laughs> small audience. Um, to hear a little bit more about the amazing journey of Zinja, which is still just getting started. So we have so much to talk about today. I want to talk a lot about what you've been doing with Zinja. And I also want to hear a little bit about your own leadership journey. So let's jump in. I'm going to start with Zinja. So tell us a little bit about Zinja. What is Zinja? And tell us how you came up with that name. Yeah, so the, the one-line version of Zinja is we're creating a, a neobank, so providing people with the ability to manage their money entirely from their mobile phones. But what's quite unique about Zinja is we're building it hand-in-hand hand with customers from the very beginning. We're also designing this to be entirely digital end-to-end, -end, not just in what customers interact with, but also how we work internally. And for us, the underlying purpose and vision behind Zinja is really about creating financial hope and removing financial fear so that people can get ahead. So what was behind your passion for doing this? How did you get into this industry and begin this journey? I actually began my career um, working with the banking regulator here in Australia. And then I moved into a number of other industries and never thought I would come back to, to banking or financial services. And it was only when um, the invitation came to be a part of, of Zinja that I saw the opportunity to disrupt an industry and experience that was just ripe for disruption. I couldn't say no. And I, I wanted to be able to bring to it a point of view of someone who hadn't been steeped in the industry for years to look at it genuinely from a customer's perspective and to be able to um, challenge everything that we know and have been taught to expect from banking. You know, one of our internal jokes is that, you know, the irony about financial services is it's really hard to get finance and it's really hard to get service. So what, what could we do about that? And I couldn't say no to the opportunity to take a good stab at it. So it's interesting. So Neobank, you, you referred to that earlier. That's a digital bank. Yes, entirely digital, designed for, for mobile. Okay. But really what makes a Neobank new is that it's not built on legacy thinking. It's not built on legacy cultures or legacy systems. So it's the newness of the whole business model that's distinct from just a digitized version of what people do today. 
And that means that our, our starting point is a blank canvas and we don't have all of these legacy challenges that existing banks um, have, but it also means we have all of this um, responsibility to really bring to life the, the potential of these digital experiences and how people really want to interact with their money. So give me an example, if you think about the, the customers that you are looking to attract and how you envision that experience for a customer who no longer wants to do it the traditional way. Talk to me about what that looks like. When we first spoke to customers around what's the experience of money like for you, we started with, you know, what, what are people's current experiences? And, and the stories we heard were incredible and just the range of impact that money has on people's lives. You know, there was a customer who spoke about money being the source of a lot of awkwardness and unpleasantness in his marriage. You know, he said, I have to be the bad guy who has to ask the question, what was that expenditure on the card for? And then for, you know, a young woman who's in a relationship trying to decide, is it okay to step into a home loan with my partner when he makes more money than me? What's a fair amount to contribute to that? And what if it all goes bad? How is the bank going to, to treat me? To hearing stories of single mothers who ended up homeless with four kids and being in a situation of you know, financial abuse and having to work for four jobs and needing to make really tough choices such as this week, do I pay for my kids' dresses so they can go to a school disco as opposed to paying for the car insurance? And then we also heard stories um, about what money means for young men and how for them it's a sign of coming of age. It's a sign of becoming a man when you start to really manage your money. But we didn't hear the same themes come up when we spoke to young women. You know, it wasn't that same thinking around the role of money and becoming an independent woman. And we also heard stories from millennials who said, you know what, our whole lives are completely different from our parents, except banking. Banking is exactly the same. So we really went back to what's the current experience of money for people and what are the opportunities and, and where do they want us to make a difference? And it kept coming back down to these key themes. There are these areas where money creates fear, fear of the future, fear of the current situation. And the kind of things that creates financial hope for people is knowing that they're going to be okay in the future, knowing that whatever happens, there's going to be a pathway out of it, knowing that someone is watching their back so what customers have told us they're really looking for is, you know, I really love a personal CFO or a personal banker, someone who's watching the money. So I don't have to manage it except when I need to make a decision about something. So can someone else just take care of everything else, use technology, use data, use AI, do the math for me. Why isn't my bank doing the math for me? And then coming to me and letting me decide what's more important to me on where my money goes. So why the name Zinja? What does that mean? It's spelled X-I-N-J-A. Yes, that's right. Uh, so we wanted a name that was easily memorable. It needed to be short. It needed to um, have a bit of energy and, and zing to it. We loved the connotations with being ninjas. And, um, you know, for us internally, the X stands for people's financial hopes and dreams. And by pure accident, it was actually one of our customers who told us afterwards that in Pinyin, Zinja actually means new home. And we just fell in love with that the, the minute that we discovered it. It's like, yes. In what language is that? Uh, Pinyin. I think it's a form of Mandarin. Really? And so when we discovered it meant new home, we thought, this is great. We're doing home loans. But more yes. than that, we'd love Zinja to be the, the new home for people's money, the new home for people's financial futures. And pink. Yes. Why pink? What's pink? The pink was 
all about standing out. We were quite deliberately wanting to be unbanky, an unbanky kind of bank. Um, so it was quite important that customers got the message early on that this was not just another bank. And we, we wanted to be brave. We wanted to, to really stand out. I love it. It's my favorite color. I love pink. So you talked a lot about the notion of purpose and you very eloquently talked about some of the experiences that people aren't able to have because businesses today don't support that and the experiences that you will be able to provide with what you're doing now. And so much of that is based in purpose. Do you see most businesses today, especially most startup businesses, having that be a key component to their business model? Yeah, absolutely. I think this current generation of entrepreneurs and founders, by current generation, you know, I'm really talking the last, you know, 30 years or so, have deliberately wanted to create um, next generation business models that are designed to be win-win rather than organizations growing at the expense of, of customers. And at one of our golden rules at Zinger is, you know, we, we are unapologetic about wanting to make heaps of money and we don't screw people over in order to do that. So being for purpose and for profit was quite important to us that it was not seen as a trade-off, yeah. um, but two goals that um, were complementary to each other. If we were doing one at the expense of the other, that's not being Zinger. That's not what we created Zinger to be. So it's very much around the intent and the vision of this generation of founders. And I think that partly also reflects, um, especially for those of us who entered parenthood at some stage, you know, thinking about the kind of world that we want to create for, for our kids as well where the organizations and brands that they interact with on a day-to-day, they can actually feel good about those interactions and about the positive impact that their money can make when they spend with a particular brand or service, not just the benefit they get out of that product, but also the underlying purpose um, that they become a part of every time they are a customer or interact with that brand. You have children? Two. And how old are your kids? Uh, they're, They're six and eight. One boy, one girl. Has being a mother uh, changed your style of leadership? How, how has that changed you as a leader? Gosh, in, in, in so many ways. I think before I became a parent, it was, in my mind, it was possible to get things right most of the time. Mm-hmm. And then I became a parent. <laughs> and you can never yeah, do your plan, it. <laughs> your plan is, is, not always, uh, is not always going to come to fruition, right? Ab- Plans are meant to be changed. Yeah, absolutely. And it it taught me to be present in the moment. It's almost a hyper-situational awareness when you're dealing with what's right in front of you, especially if it's, you know, a child that's just wet the bed. That's how my 2019 started. 3 a.m. being woken up by my six-year-old who had just wet the bed. I hope he listens to this in, you know, (laughs) 16 years or when he gets married and remembers this. And, you know, being woken up by, you know, this bedwetting, having to change the sheets, it's a very glamorous startup life. Yeah, we've all been there. If you're, if you're a mother, we've all been there, right? And um, it's really about dealing with the, the situation as it is. And what I really learned was that the way in which you deal with the unpredictable, yes. the way that you deal with life not being the way that you want it to be actually teaches your kids about what to accept, how to respond, and they were all opportunities for leadership yeah. in demonstrating this is an adult way of dealing with things. This is a helpful way of dealing with things. 
as opposed to sometimes how I'd really love to deal with things. Yes, yes, and react to things. Yeah, 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 that's right. And until I had kids, I didn't have to think too much about the impact Mm -hmm. of my reactions in those moments. And of course, in a professional setting, there's a natural constraint on how you behave. But, you know, when no one's watching... (laughs) And then you discover kids are watching all the time. Yes. But I think it's no different than as a leader. One of the things that I I was surprised by is just how much you are watched. Not just what you say, but every, you know, just every little thing, how you react to something, you know, your nonverbals, your moods, what an impact that that can have on somebody. And also what you don't say. Exactly. Exactly. And... And you learn that so much as a parent. I always love the analogy of, you know, when your kids will fall and before they react, they look at you to see, are, are, are you going to panic and ask me if everything's okay? Are you going to just tell me, get up, you're fine and dust yourself off? Mm-hmm. And they follow your lead. Yep. They follow your lead. And so many of the lessons that I've learned as a mother apply in leadership and vice versa. And the one thing I always think, I'd love your, your thoughts on this, you know, Kids live in the moment. You know, my kids are teenagers now. And so I'm acutely aware of, I feel like time is running out, right? And so I'm trying so hard to be in the present when, you know, they're available, when they want to be available to me, right? And I think back to when my kids were your kids' age and how that's a time where kids are just so present. All they care about is the moment right then. And it's harder. I found it was harder to always try to be present because they want you to be present like a a lot, Right. And I just always wonder, like, when do kids make that transition from just truly enjoying the moment to becoming more like us where we're trying, (laughs) we're living in the moments that we're planning for? I just find it as it's something being a parent really makes you so acutely aware of those moments. And it's hard. Right. Yeah. It's really hard. So I find to your point about being in the moment, it's so incredibly important as a parent, but also, you know, as a leader. And as I meet with people, just, you know, putting your phone down, really listening, really acknowledging, I think more than ever, that is so important for leaders today to do it in such a real way. There's so many parallels between parenting and leadership, not to say that anyone who's not a leader is a child. Right, right. (laughs) But um, I think one of the influences I've had is as a parent, being aware and responsive to your child's physical and and emotional needs, you know, making sure that they're fed and watered and and on dry sheets as opposed to wet ones. You know, that's kind of the easy stuff. But being attuned to your child's emotional needs is a much more nuanced um, skill and no one really tells you about it or, or teaches you about it. And I read just some amazing things around the impact that it has when children's emotional needs aren't met. So, so for example, if you know, a child needs security or validation or, or some comfort and doesn't get that or tries to voice it and then that voice is dismissed or it's not tended to in the moment, over time they learn that their needs aren't that important and then they end up being more focused on the needs of others around them and not being able to fulfill their own needs and then it comes out as resentment and, and all these other behaviours that end up not being so helpful in adult life. And so I started to become, you know, a lot more aware for myself of, you know, the kind of um, emotional needs I had as a child and when my parents were and weren't able to respond to them and the kind of behaviours I had to develop to cope with that. 
And then I think about that in a leadership context and if someone, for the longest time, I didn't even consider myself as a leader, to be honest, even as a co-founder and within Zindra as a startup. But for me, I didn't consider myself as a leader. Why? Um, it was the, I think part of it was I had grown up with all of these old management theories that it was about who you were for the people who reported to you in your direct teams. And I didn't really have one in Zindra. I was kind of like the, the thought leader on the side, I never really had to deal too much with managing. So it didn't occur to me that people watched everything I said and did or didn't do. And so I'd never really paid any attention to the impact that my thoughts and opinions and what I recognized or didn't recognize had on the people around me. And now I'm taking more of a view of, you know, every time people interact with me, I'm asking myself, what is the leadership need that I can provide to this person in my team when they're interacting with me? You know, is it encouragement? Is it clarity? Is it um, validation? Is it um, just acknowledgement that they're there? So in the same way that, you know, I've been thought about what are the emotional needs that my kids need from me as a parent, I'm thinking what are the leadership needs um, that my team have of me, even if they have never said it. They say that one of the easiest ways to actually erode a leadership relationship is to not be aware of the expectations people have of you as a leader that they've never even voiced. So if you ever, you know, have someone interacting with you as if they're mad at you, as if you've broken a promise, it's a good reflection or an indication that someone's had an expectation of you as a leader that you are clearly failing to deliver to that never got expressed. And leaders rarely ever ask their teams, what do you need or expect from me as a leader. And so it's about being aware that those expectations are there even when people don't realize it and to look for opportunities to A, be aware of them, to be able to be clear with people whether that is or isn't something that they can count on you to do and actually to be able to say, and here's what you can count on me for. Yeah. Leadership is a two-way street. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is and what people appreciate is when you're willing to make yourself vulnerable as a leader and number one, admit that you made a mistake uh, and ask for feedback. How to exactly what you said, how can I be a better leader? And more leaders, I think, need to, to think that way um, because they'll become better leaders and their followers will feel, just as you said, right, that they understand what it is that's important to me and what I need. Feedback is really hard to ask for, yeah. I've discovered, in an effective way. In my early career, it was just learn to ask for feedback, but there was never any context around how do you ask for feedback that's actually going to be useful to you as opposed to just general opinions. And so over time, I've had to learn to ask for feedback in, in context yeah. of, you know, here's what's not working for me right now. You know, what are some ways that I can do this better as opposed to um, general feedback? But I've also learned to be a lot more conscious of how I give feedback, both intentionally and I've recently discovered how I've unintentionally given feedback without even realizing it. Like what? Um, so it's interesting. I, I had no idea that just not saying that I thought someone had done an amazing job, even though I had thought it, but just not saying it, people interpret it as I'm not happy with their work or something's not good enough. Did somebody give you that feedback? Someone speculated that that could be how the absence of positive um, recognition could be received. So I have no evidence of this, but I thought it's a really interesting way to, to think about it, that just the absence of acknowledging that someone did something or responded really quickly 
can leave people feeling like they're invisible. And then I think back to my early career and I realized what motivated me a lot was knowing that the leaders in my business noticed what I did and cared about it. And then here I am in a position where I'm just so focused sometimes on what I'm trying to do next and asking people to provide this and that so that I can do that. You know, I've underestimated the value of letting people know how valuable, you know, just being able to respond to something quickly can be for me being able to do my role as well. So it's in a way similar to being a parent as well. Um, When you recognize that your kids have tried something new that they didn't know how to do, but they gave it a shot anyway to encourage their sense of, of pride and courage and experimentation and to be able to say, hey, it's great that you didn't get it right the first time and you gave it a shot anyway to invite that whole um, learning behavior and so trying to kind of learn from those two worlds is something that I've consistently tried to do. Yeah I I read this great book I think it's called The Five Love Languages and I read it as a parent because you know do you have you read this book? Yes. And it's just as applicable as a leader right because some people are motivated by words you know that matter words of affirmation yeah exactly to the point you just mentioned. Some people feel valued by acts of service right others by gifts, right? And we tend to show our appreciation or our, our affection for people based on what we the way we like to receive that. And understanding how others like to receive it, to your point, is so incredibly important. Oh, it is. And it's, it's so great you mentioned it. it. It reminds me of, there was a team huddle we had some time ago where I was, you know, talking to my team about our approach to, to customers as well. And how do we make sure that we just don't come into these relationships with customers as if we know everything and have all the answers? And I brought up the five love languages. And oh, I you said, did? I did. I said, you know, we need to think about what makes our customers feel loved. So we, like, we were having this big debate about NPS. And one of the controversial views I was sharing with my team is that um, the Net Promoter Score feels a little bit narcissistic. It's about, would you recommend my performance right. to somebody else? Right as opposed to how was it for you? Right. <laughs> no, it's, and, it's a great point. And to be able to ask, you know, our customers, you know, how do we make it less about how much do our customers love us and how do we make it more about how loved and valued do our customers feel in the same notion as how loved and valued do our people feel and our partners feel? What is it that communicates to our customers that we value them? What are their five love languages? Or rather, how do we design experiences that touch on all five of these languages so that one way or another, customers get the message that we really value them? I love that. Okay, I'm going to steal that idea. Talking about, you know, people and leadership and talent, your 10 golden rules for hiring have been published online and they're direct but very well received. Tell me about some of the winning traits that you look for as you find great talent and future leaders. Empathy is a really important part of what we look for. Um, And combined with raw intellect, we also look for curiosity, you know, so we don't want people who think they have all the answers. You know, we value experience, not so that people can be right, but so that they can see the limitations of the context in which that experience can add value. And that curiosity takes them further, invites them to look for what they don't know. And it's really about resilience. So in the context that we're working in, we're disrupting an industry, we're doing something that's never been done before. If you've ever heard of VUCA conditions, right? So being able to be resilient in an environment that's volatile, uncertain, complex, constant ambiguity, this environment isn't for everyone. Mm -hmm. And it can be very confronting, never knowing what the right answer is or not knowing what good performance or success 
looks like in this environment. No one is there to tell us, here's the right way to do it. There is no IKEA manual for what to do. So you kind of got to figure it out on your own. You've got to be okay with mistakes. And we really need people who thrive in that kind of environment. It's not enough to be able to just handle it because you'll always be dealing with how to make sure people are okay in that environment and doesn't destroy their sense of self. What's really valuable to us is finding people who are almost anti-fragile in that environment where that kind of environment makes them more and more resilient to breakage. Knowing all the answers up front is a very fragile place to be. Trying to be perfect and preserving that view of what perfection or what the experience should look like is a very fragile environment to, to work in and of itself. So hiring people who can become the best version of themselves in that VUCA environment. Absolutely. So Van, I want to talk a little bit about your background because clearly you have such a level of empathy combined with intellect, adaptability. Where did this come from? Tell us about your own journey. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you, you were a refugee, I believe. Yes, that's right. I, um, my parents and I uh, left Vietnam when I was about 11 months old. My mother was 25. My father was, was 34. And, um, you know, I remember being 25 and 34. That's probably revealing more about my age than I wanted to. Um, <laughs> but when I put myself in their shoes, the idea of having designed your life to be a particular way and then suddenly deciding that you were going to give up everything that you knew and to, to take the risk to, you know, start life again in a whole other country with a language that you couldn't even speak. I can't even begin to imagine what that might be like starting over again. That's if you didn't die on the journey. So we left Vietnam on a boat. We didn't even have a map. We had no idea where we were going. Um, there wasn't um, enough food to go around as far as I knew. And my mother was still breastfeeding at the time. I remember what breastfeeding was like. And that was with all the comforts exactly. of you know, Australian living standards. I can't even imagine what you know that would be like on a boat. So that starting context of disruption and starting again from nothing is something that's always stuck with me. And it, it created a sense of, you know, firstly, gratitude for choices and opportunities that I had only because of the personal risks and courage that my parents had taken on. So there was always the sense of, you know, no matter what, being grateful for the opportunities um, available to you. So, you know, boss, I'm there at 2 a.m. in the morning trying to negotiate the last few terms of a, of a contract, remembering, you know what, this is the problem I wanted to have. You know, sometimes telling myself, this is the kind of problems that my parents wanted me to, right. to have. Right. And so that was the first, is the, the sense of gratitude for whatever comes. Yeah. Um, and the second is I've kind of created an identity for myself around my whole life being born out of courage and taking risks when there were no guarantees about what's going to, to happen. And, you know, sometimes I feel like the every time I, I take a risk, um, it honours the risk that my parents took. And, you know, I, I'm sure I feel like I'm never going to be able to be a match for, let's just start my whole life like all over you again. You can't even like wrap your head around what, yeah. how they had to decide to, you know, made that decision. Every step of that journey is like hard to do in the best of circumstances. Right. As and you it's said. one thing to take that risk for yourself when you're just a single right. person. But when you're also taking the risk that your child might die oh in my the gosh. process. You know, taking that responsibility for multiple lives and taking that risk anyway, it's just a level of courage that has just consistently um, inspired me throughout my, my whole life, especially when things 
get hard. It's like, hey, my parents have been through worse. <laughs> right. It's okay, you know, we, we can do this. And you know what, even if it doesn't work out, it, it's going to be a risk um, worth taking, especially if, you know, no one's going to die or, or get pregnant. Um, <laughs> so those two key themes around gratitude, seeing opportunities and the courage to take opportunities, especially opportunities that can make a difference for others are, have been really important um, parts of my journey. And then arriving in Australia alive um, was a big deal. And then one of the next biggest personal challenges I had growing up was my first few experiences of the possibility that people can simply dislike you, hate you even, without even knowing you. As a child, having an adult yell at you down the street, ching chong, go home, was probably one of the first experiences I've had of, wow, I can be hated simply for existing. Wow. For a long time, I didn't feel like a real Australian, even though I had grown up in Australia and I learned to, to speak English. I often had to do adult things on behalf of my parents because they couldn't speak English. I remember lining up for family benefits and government benefits and having to explain as a 13-year-old to an adult person on the other side of the counter um, what my family situation is and why I was doing this on behalf of my parents because I, I was a minor at the time. Um, but trying to explain this whole situation so that we could actually make sure that we got paid and had enough cash just to get by. You know, the not only was it a, a new country and a new language, you know, there was very limited earning potential as well as migrants. And I still remember going to school and with me and my four siblings, I was in year seven and my brothers and sisters were in year five, year three, year two and year one. I think there was, yeah, four of us all in primary school at the same time. And I had $2.40 for lunch to share between all of us and just making things like that um, work on a day-to-day -day basis. And what was really interesting was back in those days, you know, you could get four packets of two-minute noodles from the school canteen for $2.40 and you can still do that today. I love that there's been barely wow. any inflation in two-minute noodles over <laughs> all, of, all of this time. Also learned it's not culturally acceptable to go to a children's birthday party with underwear as the gift. It's embarrassing for your friend and for you. My parents thought that it was great to give something really practical because their mindset was about making every doll account. But no one wants everyone to see the underwear. Well, not at that age anyway. <laughs> I think when you inadvertently get put in situations where it's just the wrong, inappropriate thing to do, you start to build a certain resilience for mistakes and getting it wrong by accident. You kind of get used to being mortified, embarrassed, coming across as creepy and everything right. else. and thick skin. Um, under the sun. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think in many ways is a theme that keeps coming up in this startup environment. There's always bound to be something that you're doing that someone believes should be done away in a, a particular way. You know, we're, we're doing things as a startup that people think we should be doing the way a mature organisation should we're doing things as a tech company that people believe we should be doing more like a bank or we're behaving like a bank in some ways where people believe that we should be behaving as a non-bank. Mm -hmm. So all of this really draws on those kinds of early experiences of trying to find identity, belonging, trying to pull together all of these um, perspectives to create something new that's never been done before. Ben, this has been such a great discussion. We covered a lot of ground. We talked about Zinja. We talked about how being a parent is highly correlated to being a leader. And 
We talked about your incredible background and the resilience that you've learned and all of those experiences I can see are going to serve Zinja so well going forward. And I wish you all the best as you continue to break new barriers and have great success and create amazing experiences for other people. So thanks so much for being with me today. And thank you to SAP for being a part of the Zinja journey. We, we couldn't do this without everyone involved. Thank you. This is Jennifer Morgan, and you've been listening to A Call to Lead. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hey, if you haven't left a review or given a rating, please do. I want to hear from you. What did you like? Who do you want to hear from? What do you want to hear more of? It would be awesome. And I hope to see you next time on A Call to Lead.